Morning. So uh, come on. Um, if God's ways has been said, you stuck with me again this morning. But um, this time I've forgotten my watch, so it's doubled down this morning. So who knows what will happen next? Uh, we're going to uh, look at this passage this morning, and then um, we'll, we'll sing again before we close, which will hopefully be an encouragement. But um, I've got a few, well, to be fair, the slides this morning are very, very simple, but uh, hopefully it'll be helpful visually. Now, before we turn to God's word this morning, um, what I'd like to do to start is just briefly recap the thread that we've seen running up to today's passage um, so we can see the full context. I remember in chapter two, um, we had the coming of the spirit at Pentecost. God has empowered his apostles in their ministry to boldly go out and proclaim uh, Jesus. And that's exactly what they were doing in Acts chapter three when the lame man was miraculously healed by God uh, through Peter. And off the back of all this excitement, last week at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw Peter proclaim there was no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so we thought about two points. The boldness, first of all, of Peter and John in just their example as they go to the temple, where it was bound to be uh, the most contentious place for them to preach the gospel, where they were bound to find the most opposition And then we looked at the reason why they were compelled to go, which is that Jesus is the only hope, the cornerstone for all people, and the only uh, hope of salvation. So Peter, and I think we've probably already seen this in Acts, it's just a different man to the one that we find in the Gospels. Suddenly, he's gripped, isn't he, with a radical passion and a clarity in his speech and such a love of Jesus that his hearers are astonished just to hear him speaking. We saw, even amongst all that opposition, that there were many who believed the message So their mission to the temple, no matter what followed in the passage then and what we'll see today, was worth it and it glorified God because it bore fruit. But we left Peter and John having been seized and imprisoned for the night. We left them after questioning and Peter's incredible response, still awaiting news of what the spiritual leaders at the time were going to do with them. And that's where our passage picks up this morning. So in Acts chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 13 to 22 today, which says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could see. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's pray as you come to the application from that. Lord God, I thank you this morning for the example that's set in scripture of these these early believers who were so gripped by the, the truth and the wonder of the gospel that they couldn't help but go out and speak about it. And Lord, as we come this morning, perhaps we find ourselves like weak vessels really struggling to know how to 
um, to do this in our community, how to reach our neighbours, our family and friends and those we perhaps work with. I pray, Lord, that um, as we see this example, as we consider the message um, of the gospel afresh, and as we think about that question, whom shall I fear, that each one of us might be emboldened and uh, filled with a passion, a real love of your word, Lord, a love of the truth and a love of those around us. So I speak, pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us and um, just change us through the hearing of your word. Amen. So if last time we focused on the phrase, uh, simple phrase, no other name, this morning I want to make it uh, as simply and as clear as possible. The overarching title would be, Whom Shall I Fear?, which we've sung those words already. And it's clear that Peter and John, um, in front of the very leaders who manufactured the trial of Jesus and called for his crucifixion, are in a dangerous moment themselves now. All kinds of persecution could have followed their preaching. What gives them the conviction to look them in the eye and say, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And is it possible for us today to have that kind of conviction and that kind of boldness? And so that's what I'm hoping to explore. I came across the example in um, sort of preparing for this of John Knox, the Scottish reformer in the 1500s. And as John Knox famously preached powerful sermons to stir up the hearts of his audience to the true gospel, he became more and more of a threat in his time to the spiritual leaders and the Catholic authorities. And a little bit like our passage, the threat of execution was very, very real for him as well. But despite all the threat, John Knox has said that he feared God so much that he had no fear for any human trial. And a quote from himself at the end of his life said, So I end, rendering my troubled and sorrowful spirit in the hands of the eternal God, earnestly trusting at his good pleasure to be freed from the cares of this miserable life and to rest with Christ Jesus, my only hope and life. And apparently somebody who visited his grave at his death, don't know who it was, said, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. I thought that was a great quote. He was clearly a man who had one hope, one gospel to preach. He wasn't afraid of who knew it and who tried to stop him. There's a lot more that we could say about his life. Uh, but in his ministry, in a time when the opposition was very rich and powerful, a little bit like what we were seeing in our passage, uh, he epitomizes the kind of attitude that Peter and John showed when they refused to, to pack in with this preaching of Christ alone. And so I hope this morning will serve as a follow-up to Peter and John's preaching. We saw that they were essentially on the attack with the gospel last week, but now that powerful opposition they're up against is just flexing its muscles. They were told to stop this talk of Jesus with that hanging threat over their heads of more trouble to come. But they didn't fear. So what reasons did they have and what reasons can we take to say that as we go into the week? So we'll look at three things that we can carry forward. If you want to pick the next slide up, Nathan. This is the only slide I've got, really. Um, but I think it's hopefully helpful to have that structure there. All of those with the goal of giving us encouragement that we have nothing to be afraid of in this world. So I haven't included a lot of detail on there, but hopefully it'll help us to keep track. What reasons do Peter and John give us not to fear? Well, firstly, I believe they had the empirical evidence. That is the evidence in this case that the gospel message is true. So the first reason I think Peter and John stand so boldly is that they're proclaiming, what they're proclaiming is based on solid evidence. And when I include the word empirical, I just wanted to share the definition because I don't want to use needlessly complicated words for nothing. So empirical means based on or concerned with or verifiable by observation or experience rather than theory or pure logic. So much, I think, of modern belief 
and the world that we live in is based on unobserved theory or logical arguments being strung together. And I love a good debate and love listening to people be critical and listen to one another and try and reason and solve tricky problems with good thinking and skills. But there are some things in life that you just can't reason with in that way. They're either just true or they're false. For example, I don't pretend to have watched a lot of this show, but have you heard of the show Is It Cake? Which has become a sensation recently. If you've heard of that before. I'll explain what it is. Imagine that I put two identical drum kits on the stage this morning, one like that, just like that one there. And uh, the real one is there and also one that's been baked from cake. Perhaps somebody here could bake something up for us like that. Maybe have that a go. And you had a reason and try and consider this morning which one is the real thing and which one is actually made from cake. You have a theory, maybe you're discussing it together and you think, well, that one looks shinier than the other one. Maybe there's a little bit of dusting on that one. That could be flour or something like that. But ultimately in the show, they're able to empirically prove who is right by taking a knife to the cake and uh, proving which one was real and which one wasn't. The one who's wrong, obviously, and that ended up looking really stupid at that point um, because that's empirical evidence for you. It's verifiable, it's observable experience rather than theory. You can put a knife through it and you can taste it. That one's cake and the other one's not. So Peter and John are bold in the face of opposition because they have empirical evidence on their side of that level of what they've seen and heard to share with everyone they meet. And more than that, those people are now seeing that kind of evidence themselves because they've seen a miracle with their own eyes as well, because of the healing of the lame man. And Peter knows the importance of this kind of evidence. And we can say this because in 2 Peter 1, 16, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying we didn't give you theories, we didn't try to persuade you because of clever logic. We told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus in power, because we saw it with our own eyes. And think of the things these men have seen in their lives. They've witnessed the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, they've witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and now they've experienced the power of the Spirit in their lives as well. They've got good reason to be entirely convinced that this gospel message that they're sharing is true. Such good reason, in fact, that this same group of disciples that deserted Jesus not so long ago in the Garden of Gethsemane are the same group of apostles who never renounced the faith and are almost all killed for speaking about Christ. They have empirical evidence which is irrefutable even in the face of danger. And we can take heart today from knowing just how firmly they believed in that message that they preached. Now here's the beauty of our passage as we bring that to light. If I just read verses 13 to 17 again, from Acts 4, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could see. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. I was thinking about that first point. If there was any doubt at the time among the people, at the time that Acts was written, that the gospel of Jesus, that the testimony of Peter and John was false, now is the time to hear it. When this group of leaders get together, now is the time to produce the empirical counter-evidence, as it were, to claim the body of Jesus is still in the ground, 
or to accuse them again of making the resurrection up, or even just to claim that this miracle that they've seen was a scam or a faith healing like we see sometimes on the television for the crowds. But do they claim any of these things in the passage? No. The passage says they saw the the courage of Peter and John and they were astonished. They took note because they could empirically say these men were with Jesus. And since they could see the evidence of the miracle standing in front of them with their own eyes, there was nothing that they could say about it. And it gets worse for them, doesn't it? Because it says that everyone in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and they cannot deny it either. And so they don't deny it in the passage. They don't deny any of it publicly. They don't bring a refutation of the gospel or indeed this healing. I thought, isn't that significant as a starting point for that message there? The empirical evidence available at the time confounded the opposition entirely. All they can come up with is how do we get them to stop talking about it? Now, because of the way my mind works, I've always loved that kind of clear-cut evidence for us, but I've noted from talking to a lot of people um, that not everyone's the same as me, and praise God for that. But um, today, there are people who will tell us that this empirical evidence doesn't exist. There are people who will make theories about the myths and the legends or, or the origins of these stories about Jesus. There are even people who will claim he didn't exist at all, which is absolute nonsense. And to that issue, I believe that having this evidence, this empirical evidence today still, a gift from God to us really, is helpful. Peter actually speaks further into this issue in his letters. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. He said this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And Peter's saying, don't fear their threats, don't be frightened, but be prepared with gentleness and respect to show the opposition where they're wrong. Show them the reason for the hope that you have. And in the Greek, the word means essentially give a reasoned defense. And so do you have a reasoned defense this morning for the hope of the gospel? We won't all be called to swallow all the answers like a textbook to every difficult question. But the, tr- tr- uh, the, sorry, the core truths of the gospel are under attack today. Did Jesus exist? Did the gospel writers even live at that time? Did the Catholic Church at one time in history just choose which books they wanted to put in there? Is Jesus just a collection of myths and ancient stories? Well, the good news is that empirically, I don't believe we have anything to fear. Peter and John didn't fear in the face of their opposition because they knew the truth was on their side. They would confidently say to their audience, well, you be the judge. You'd never say that if you were standing on shaky evidence. And one of the most precious things about the Bible that I hold tightly to is that there's no question that can pop into my mind today that I can't go and investigate thoroughly to figure out what the truth is. So to conclude the point, I fully believe that God has given us today, firstly, amazing historical evidence in the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection exploded, that message exploded out of Jerusalem in the first century and couldn't be refuted in its time. Secondly, the greatest manuscript evidence by far of any work in the ancient world with thousands of early sources to show us today the authenticity of the Bible, both New and Old Testament. 
as an extension of that, the Old Testament pieces that we have foreshadowing Christ as well, give us that powerful prophetic evidence that Jesus is the Messiah promised from the ancient times. And thirdly, that's not to mention the archaeological evidence, which is still turning our treasures today and showing us the Bible's authority. So why does God give us these gifts? Why has God preserved so much over 2,000 years? Well, it's just one of the pieces that I'm presenting this morning. But remember in Matthew 22, 37, Jesus famously gives the greatest commandments to the teachers of the law that we're listening to in Acts here. And the first one Jesus says famously goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I don't know about you today, I find that hard to fulfill. Let me see, honestly, there's never been a day in my life that I've uh, loved the Lord with all of my heart, soul, and mind. But if I'm aspiring to love God in that way, how can we do it? When we, when we accept the gospel, we're going to love the Lord with our heart and with our um, soul. But if I think we were standing on shaky ground, it would be hard to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. If the gospel was baseless, if it was empty of any empirical evidence that it was actually true, then I don't think we could love the Lord intellectually with our minds because we're presented, thankfully, with empirical evidence, eyewitness testimony and everything we've looked at. We can be intellectually satisfied as well as spiritually satisfied. And for that reason, I believe we too can hold on to that point as the empirical evidence as a reason not to be afraid. And the second reason that I think they're able to stand boldly in the face of opposition is that they're following a far higher authority than any voice in the world. The second reason not to fear is that the authority of the word of God is the authority in their lives. Peter and John are explicit in making this case in the words that we've uh, already focused on, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him. You be the judges. What they're essentially stating is quite simple. It's either the word of men, powerful men, yes, but still just men on one side, and it's the word of God on the other. And we've seen the truthful foundations already in that evidence we've looked at. But if we're convinced that Jesus is Lord and we have his very words to work with in our Bibles, they're saying, you tell us what to do with them then. Peter and John's question is obviously rhetorical in that sense. There's no way the chief priests are going to answer them publicly and say, well, ignore God and listen to us. And yet implicitly, that is exactly what they did. They throw some further threats around and then they let them go because the crowds are praising God for what happened. But in this second point, I think we can draw inspiration too from Peter and John's emphasis on why they're doing this. They aren't proclaiming Jesus just because they saw it and have some good evidence that it happened. They're proclaiming Jesus because this was the command of Jesus to them. In other words, they heard the words of the Lord Jesus and they put them into practice no matter the cost. Now we might look at their example today and think it's a little bit different from us. We're removed in time from these events to find the same inspiration that they might have had. And I confess sometimes as I'm reading Acts, you're tempted to think, well, it was easy for them, wasn't it? You know, like they saw Jesus and they saw all of these different events. And I think that sort of thinking misses the point, doesn't it, of what it's trying to say. What's our inspiration to dear? The apostles who saw Jesus, yes, they were prepared for great things. They were witnesses of Jesus' majesty. They saw the power of the Lord and the fulfillment of scripture and they heard the words of Jesus, and they must have had such a strong picture of, of who God is and the urgency of listening to his voice, and praise God that they had that as eyewitnesses. But God hasn't then just trailed off and left the church with nothing to go on, has he? He's given us his complete Bible, he's given us the revealed word, which has been meticulously given to us today. 
It's been handed down to us in order that we too, like the apostles, can see the power of God in action. We can see the fulfillment of scripture too. We can hear the words of Jesus for ourselves like they did in the scriptures. The word of God is given that we too might grasp a picture of who God is and that we too might understand the urgency of listening to his voice. And the Bible says itself, it's still sharper than a double-edged sword and it still speaks to us. So as we study it, do we see God more clearly? Do we understand his nature and who he is? And the practical outpouring of that, if we do it, I think, is that we'll feel differently about the world around us like they did. So when I titled the sermon, Whom Shall I Fear? Um, originally it was because the verses that came to mind in terms of summarizing Peter and John's attitude were from Psalm 27. If you have a Bible, it might be helpful to turn there because I think these verses are so helpful uh, for this point. So we're considering the point that the authority of the word of God is a reason not to fear. And I was thinking, well, what should we expect to find in scripture if that's true? Well, I hope that we'd expect to find that the scripture is going to glorify God, is going to help us to see him more clearly, is going to put into context who God is and how much greater he is than our problems. And then after that, we'd understand that if he's sovereign, that we've not, nothing to fear that's underneath him here on earth. So Psalm 27, let's... Uh, let these words speak for themselves and think about how Peter and John embodied this attitude in the face of their oppressors. I'm just going to read it through because it does speak for itself. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me even then I will be confident one thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple and even just stopping there for a moment you can see that the picture it's building of how great how glorious how wonderful God is and then using that as the reason why we need and fear for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my saviour. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. What I love about that passage is that it, it, it's full of danger. Not well, love that it's full of dangers. It doesn't sound very nice, does it? But it is full of dangers and there's a lot of dangers in that passage. At no point, though, does the word of God suggest that serving him will lead to an easy life. But in all things we go through, do we still desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Do we trust that although on earth our enemies might appear to have the upper hand, God says in his word that he'll exalt his people. Are we able to still say, even though there's fear, as verse 11 did there, teach me your way, Lord. 
That's a difficult example to follow. And Peter and John, along with countless early believers, were going to see what it looked like for God to show them his way in their lives, not their own. They would need to, like the last verse said there, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Don't forget that Peter was once told these words by Jesus, John 21. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And here we are seeing the living example Peter then sets as he follows those words. Wherever they might lead and whatever the cost might be. Peter wasn't promised an easy life. Jesus essentially told him his own death story and then said, follow me. Now for us today, we probably proclaim Jesus' word as the authority in our lives. I would say that probably all the time. Proclaim it and read it and try to follow it, but the fear is still there at times. So why do I struggle so much? I think my personal challenge was this, and it came up as we were discussing this on Friday at the Bible study. My picture of God is just not big enough so much of the time. I capture glimpses in Scripture and think, wow, that's an amazing picture. Then wake up the next day and the significance of that picture wears off. Often find my picture of God obscured by the circumstances of life in a way that makes the powers or the voices of the world seem bigger than the God who created the world. I know who God is in Scripture, and perhaps you're the same, but I fluctuate with how much authority I'm going to let that have over the day-to-day life. One day I might align my priorities and really get a clear message from his words, but the other day, the opportunity to represent Christ at work, well, it requires me to be bold and it falls by the wayside. But the scripture's clear, isn't it? The Lord is my light, it's my sal- he's my salvation and my stronghold, so whom shall I fear? So let's be inspired to take the, on board the example we're set again here in Acts 4. Align our lives with the authority of God's words like they did, and don't be afraid of the consequences. And as David said in another psalm, which is uh, 56, in God I trust and I'm not afraid, what can man do to me? And finally, um, as a third point, and uh, I'll keep this one short. Uh, the third reason we don't have to fear is our own uh, testimony of grace. So the picture we're building up, hopefully, with those points is as follows. We have the empirical evidence surrounding God's word that speaks uh, of a real evidence-based faith. Following that, we have that word in our lives, the authority over us. And of course, who are we to question our maker, really? But even armed with that, we mustn't forget our own testimony. Without that would probably be a lot like textbooks, really. We could reel off the truth of the word of God. But God has given us a story of grace, and that should lift us when we face opposition. When you read the accounts of the, in Acts of the early apostles' preaching, the joy of their testimonies, I think, is often the thing that, even when they're not even telling their stories, it just shines through in the words that they speak anyway. Because they've got that living relationship with the Lord Jesus, it brings them joy even when these scary enemies stand in front of them. And don't forget that because of this message, you and I, we were dead in transgressions and sins, but now raised to life in Christ as well. In verse 13 of our passage, we're told that Peter and John were just ordinary men, as we've thought about already. They were unschooled. And it sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it, the way they say that in the passage. We praise God that that's true. Because it's precisely why the chief priests are astonished. It's because of how ordinary and unschooled they are. They can see that something mysterious, something powerful has gone on in the lives of these men because they're just not the men that they were before. 
They were ordinary. Uh, they're telling the truth when they say it. They were unschooled. And we can pick up the Gospels any time and see for ourselves just how ordinary these people were as Jesus rebuked his ordinary followers. They didn't have a clue what was going on half the time as they followed Jesus around. But now by the power of the Spirit, they're speaking in a way that confounds the ones who are schooled, the ones who are special. Now their words carry an authority that just doesn't make sense coming from these uh, simple people. And more than that, they say they can't help speaking about what they've heard, uh, what they've seen and heard, sorry. And for believers, there's that God-given task that we too should speak the truth. But there's also a God-given testimony, a passion that he stirs up in the hearts of those he saves, that those who love him cannot help speaking about it. And perhaps as we say that, we honestly wonder um, if we can't help speaking about Jesus. Maybe we feel that this isn't our lived out experience right now to feel like that. Perhaps it once was, or perhaps we've gone through seasons like that, but it's been a long time since the last time we had that kind of passion for sharing Jesus with the people around us. Perhaps we still have that fear that people would scoff at our testimony or that they would ignore it. And I sort of did a little bit of a dive thinking about testimony, that word, and read through some of Paul's statements about his testimony, about not being ashamed of the gospel. Searched up everywhere in the New Testament that speaks of testimony. And there's a lot to see. Um, but in the end, what drew me the most was just a simple picture that Jesus gave of light in uh, John 8 and Matthew 5. Famous words, John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I hope that in points one and two this morning, we've established the truth about Jesus and the importance of taking him at his word. Now remember that whoever follows Jesus will never walk in darkness, but have that light of life. Now you're carrying that light, the testimony of God's work in your life. But Jesus says more than that, of course, in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus' words go way beyond just the evidence, uh, what we've seen and following his commands. He says, you are the light. Just like Peter and John, something mysterious, something incredible takes part, heart there, so it takes place in the life of every believer, and now you are the light. Your story, your testimony of grace, now go and let it shine before others. I'm sure you, like me, can think of many moments right through my Christian experience where an opportunity has presented itself to do just that. Let your light shine before others. And I've popped the ball on top and just let that moment pass too nervous just then or just much easier not to take that risk there that might be a bit offensive I'm sure you've had moments like that too where you've thought to yourself oh I can't say that just now I'll just let that light stay under that ball for a moment until the moment's gone and keep it to myself and yet I can also recall moments where I've shared the truth as well I knew when I did it that despite the nerves it was the right thing to do I remember a couple of occasions the last few years I've, over the last few years I've upset friends um, or, or uni or people I've worked with when I sharing the gospel and they didn't want to hear it or didn't like it when they did hear it. But I've never come away from one of those situations and then thought, oh gosh, I wish I didn't say that. And I'm sure you're probably the same. Think to yourself, when you've been bold enough to let your light shine, have you ever wished afterwards that you didn't do it? 
Well, the last scripture I want to share on this um, is from Luke 12, 4 to 12. Words of Jesus again. It says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. A very significant verse in this one, verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And I thought those verses are almost like Jesus' own commentary of everything that we need to hear and know on this point. Don't be afraid. Things might get a bit scary, but God cares about you enough to know the very number of hairs on your head. Publicly acknowledge Jesus. And actually, when you're questioned by those who don't like it, remember the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. What a promise. Do we really trust in that today and believe it? So don't fear. Celebrate your personal testimony of grace. He who's faithful has promised to give you the words to say when you need them. Now, as we have conclusion, I hope those three points have come through fairly clearly and have given us a reason not to be afraid, but to follow the example of Peter and John in speaking the truth wherever God send us. But I will close with a testimony that challenged us not so long ago. Um, a few weeks ago, we were sat down in, uh, in Bethlehem to, to, to lunch with a guest visitor um, who came to us with his wife, who just happened to sit with our little Sunderland group at the time. And this man's name was Dr. Naim Khoury. So we chatted to him over lunch for quite a while with his wife, just like you would with any other uh, brother or sister in Christ, and about all sorts of things, about places that we've been and the church that he passed in Bethlehem and a little bit about like trivial things, really, as you do over lunch. It was lovely fellowship. But then after we'd finished eating, Dr. Curry uh, gave his testimony to the group. And uh, though we were brothers in Christ and had all that in common and had this lovely time of fellowship, it just didn't half land just how different our Christian experiences had been so far. See, Dr. Curry was born to a Palestinian uh, Muslim family. And while he was still a young man, he encountered Christ and was saved. And initially... He didn't want to tell anybody about it, or he wasn't sure how he could tell anybody about it because he was afraid of the response. But like Peter in our passage, he was convicted that he couldn't help but to speak about this. So the first person he told was his mother. And she basically reiterated the necessity exactly like he'd had himself. Don't speak to anyone else about it. Notice the parallels in our passage. It's only going to cause trouble, and only trouble if you proclaim this Jesus to the family. But undeterred, he gave the message to the rest of his family as well. And it caused plenty of trouble. But over the years, he told that each member of his family, one by one, had accepted Christ in saving faith. And that all sounded amazing just hearing that part of the story on its own. He trained in ministry at that point. He planted a church in Bethlehem, which has grown to about 200 Palestinian Christians over the 45 years. But in that time, his brother had been martyred in Jerusalem for the gospel. And he himself had been shot in the shoulder 
and the church in Bethlehem had been targeted in bombings 13 times in the 45 years. And just two years ago, Dr. Curry had spent 42 years in intensive care with COVID. Doctors said there was no hope for him. And uh, after a vision and a miraculous recovery, he now says he feels a renewed vigor and stronger than ever before to carry on with his mission. I was just hearing the story, even thinking about this constant threat of violence that he's had and his own health issues, having already lost a brother. And uh, he just epitomized the kind of attitude that Peter and John showed when they say they cannot stop speaking about Jesus. And it was clear that his love for Christ and his love for neighbor was shining through, um, right through his life. And so I thought the example was so helpful that Jesus said, didn't he, that in this world we'll have trouble and many believers suffer a lot more trouble than us, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So hopefully we can take heart in that and pray as we close this morning. Lord God, um, as we come to the passage, there's so many applications that jump out that are so simple and so clear as we just see the, the bold example of your people who don't fear in the face of frightening authorities in the face of persecution, in the face of even their own death. They know that your authority stands way higher, way greater than any human authority that we can face in this world. So Lord, I pray that in us this morning, you would implant a fear of the Lord, a fear that's so great that we have no fear for anyone's opinion, for anyone's trial, uh, for any persecution that might come. Lord, we don't know what will happen in this country. And I thank you that this moment in time, we have the freedom to speak, to speak and proclaim the gospel, Lord. But for those around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have that, Lord, I pray that we might pray for them, that we might uh, pray for their strength and their boldness, but also take inspiration from their example, knowing, Lord, that they cannot help speaking. Lord, where does that leave us this morning? Thinking about our own lives. How often do we really take that attitude out that we cannot help speaking of this name, the only name by which we can be saved? Pray, Lord, that you would embolden us, Lord, as a church, that you continue to speak to us through Acts as we see many more inspiring examples of uh, men and women standing boldly with the gospel in the face of opposition. Pray that you'd uh, challenge us and speak to us as we go from this place this morning and to keep searching these things out in the scriptures to see that it's true and to be uh, able to really carry out, just like David spoke, Lord, what can man do to me in our uh, daily lives? Thank you this morning for your words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Invite the band back up and we'll sing as we close.